When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words, and Their Origins. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode 6 and 40, titled Number Theory, wherein we discuss how we went from 6 and 40 to the thoroughly drab 46. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. I'd like to start off the show by reading an email. This is a particularly touching one. It's from... E.P. Hackett. And he says, among other things, you have a nuanced, insightful, and entertaining podcast that eases my journey through a high school that is, as typical, lacking linguistics classes. He goes on to talk about some of the people and things in his life that got him interested in language and linguistics, including Ben Zimmer's The Word Column in the Boston Globe, and says... Thank you for a great podcast, and thank you for encouraging me in my journey to become a linguist. So, Bob, we are shaping young minds here. Oh, my gosh. We're molding the nation's youth. We are. First of all, I'm pretty impressed with this guy. I'm mystified how anybody could have such passion and focus at that age. I don't even want to begin to tell you where I was when I was in high school. And, yeah, it's uh, you're right. It's very poignant. Uh, You know, I wish that I had an influence like this when I was in high school. I did religiously read Bill Sapphire's on language column in the New York Times Magazine and loved it, but it somehow didn't inspire me to become a linguist. I think there are some people who listen to this podcast that assume that I have a degree in linguistics. I don't. I have a Bachelor of Science in biology and a Master's in journalism. I am not at all schooled in linguistics. I never took a single course. Actually, I'm surprised that you even have more than a year of college, to uh, <laughs> tell you the truth. It's, this is your uh, academic resume is news to me. I guess a lot of it just kind of fades over time, right? The knowledge and judgment and wisdom and maturity and scope. Is this an elaborate dig at me? Is that what this is? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Heaven forfend. <laughs> okay, on to today's episode. Having a 14-month-old, as I do, Bob, I am steeped in the peculiar verbiage that is the nursery rhyme. I'm sure you're familiar with them, having three children. (laughs) I was actually, I was around when they were written, most of them. Yeah. So I have been made to feel self-conscious about whether or not my ears hang low and wobble to and fro, or whether they hang high, thus enabling me to semaphore my neighbor with a minimum of labor. I have been happy... And I've known it, and I really wanted to show it, so I clapped my hands. Yeah, diddle diddle dumpling, my friend Mike, half Italian, half of uh, Hebrew persuasion. (laughs) Did he just make that up? (laughs) 
did. <laughs> That's a nursery rhyme that is probably not really appropriate for children. I might not have gotten the words exactly right. In any case, Bob, I have sung a song, not of one or two, but of six pence. Sing the song of six pence, a pocket full of rye. Four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was old, then the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the... Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. Putting aside any questions we may have about the culinary wisdom of a blackbird pie, what is unusual about that verse? Why, Mike... I read the intro out loud. You must be <laughs> referring to the archaic expression of the number 24. Yes, 4 and 20. And in fact, the numbers from 20 to 99 were written out that way exclusively, we thought, in Old English. And Old English is the variety of English that existed up until about the mid-1100s, give or take. This assumption that we had about Old English and their treatment of numerals was more or less confirmed this year in a paper in the journal Language Variation and Change by a couple of researchers, Thomas Berg and Marion Neubauer at the University of Hamburg. They searched a database of about 100 Old English texts for numerals that were written out and found several hundred examples of them. And for the numbers between 20 and 99, Every single case was written out in this exact way, unit and tend, four and 20, six and 30, so on. So they wrote, and I'll paraphrase, we thus feel entitled to conclude that if there was any other way of writing out numerals in Old English, quote, it must have been fairly minor and hence negligible. So the question is, why and when did we get from four and 20 to 24? Yeah, that's one question. Another question might be, is the modern usage better or worse? For my part, you know, I can't imagine watching an espionage thriller called 4 and 20. You know, I just don't think it sings. <laughs> By the same token, I can't imagine watching one called 24 and, and never did because it's, you know, preposterous on the face of it. But the stiltedness of the old way of doing things really doesn't translate very well into our modern society and our modern way of expressing ourselves, you know. It's too fusty. So I think what you're saying is that if Kiefer Sutherland had been alive in the Middle Ages, his show would not have been a hit. Quick follow-up question. Had Kiefer Sutherland been alive in the Middle Ages, would his father still be insufferable? <laughs> I like Donald Sutherland. So what you're suggesting is that in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to express round-the-clockness, you would have to say 4 and 27 instead of 24-7. And again, it just sounds weird. <laughs> exactly. There's no music to it. Well, there are languages, Germanic languages, German itself, that still write out numbers in exactly that way that we used to in Old English. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah, I won't watch Fahrensfanzig either. It's still contrived. So these researchers, Berg and Neubauer, wanted to find out more or less when that unit in 10 construction started to give way to something else. Obviously, it did. We don't use it anymore. So what they did was they searched a few more databases. One was Middle English text. So this is around 12th century to 15th century. Everything from Chaucer to 
a book called A Treatise on Horses to one called 50 Earliest Wills in the Court of Probate London. Now, I should say that typically in, in the Middle Ages, in Old English and in Middle English, numbers were written as numbers, as they are frequently today, right? Not so much written out as words. So the sample size is not as large, perhaps, as one would like, but they did the same thing with a database of early modern English, so around 15th century to 17th century, and then late modern English, which takes us up to today. Across these three databases, they found a little over 800 examples of numbers between 20 and 99 written out. Oddly, Every number between 20 and 99 was represented, was found, except for one, which is just sort of anomalous and kind of a curious little detail. The number 93 was somehow not in any of these databases written out as the words 93. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That is such the basis of some sort of mystery novel. The absence of 93. What a wonderful peg to hang your literary hat on. Yeah, you could even call it the absence of ninety-three. I like yeah, that title. Yeah, hold the thought. Although you know that might actually step on the, uh, the surprise, but yeah. Okay, so what did Berg and Neubauer find in the Middle English database? People were writing not just four and twenty, like in Old English, but also twenty and four. So people were starting to reverse or flip the order, but still keeping that and in the middle. Was this an act of volition or? Was it just kind of a tick that eventually evolved into common usage? Well, there's no evidence that this was a conscious conspiratorial effort to change the language. But if you look at this Middle English database, the 20 and 4 starts to overtake the construction 4 and 20. Then if you go into the early modern English database, both 4 and 20 and 20 and 4 start to decrease And our way, 24, without the and, starts to increase, and that trend continues into late modern English until it finally takes over completely. And 4 and 20 and 20 and 4 die out altogether within the 20th century, except when used in very kind of consciously archaic ways. You're four score and seven years ago. Exactly. And that, we know, was very consciously constructed by Lincoln in that way to evoke the past. So to sum up, and I'll paraphrase again Berg and Neubauer, the Old English order 4 and 20 remained the either exclusive or preferred pattern up to about the 15th century. In the 15th century, this competitor 20 and 4 rises to then become the dominant way of constructing numerals written out. And our way rises, as Berg and Neubauer say, quote, out of nowhere precipitously, and then becomes dominant. So this switch from fully 4 and 20 to fully 20, no and, 4, plays out over the course of about 700 years. All right, let's pause for a brief moment and talk about our wonderful sponsor, The Great Courses. The Great Courses believes, as do we here at Lexicon Valley, clearly, that the desire to learn doesn't stop after your formal education and certainly doesn't stop after college. The Great Courses offers audio and video lectures taught by some of the best professors from around the country. I've been highlighting a course called The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. It's taught by Ann Curzan, who is a University of Michigan linguistics professor and erstwhile guest on this show. 
She is such a thoughtful and engaging lecturer, just one of those people who was clearly born to be a linguist, clearly born to be a teacher. One of my favorite episodes in this course, in part because I'm fascinated by the craft of lexicography, is called The Human Hands Behind Dictionaries. It's so easy to forget that the dictionary, as authoritative as we believe it to be, is really just a collection of human beings who are deciding what words mean, deciding how we define them. It's a great episode. If you order The Secret Life of Words right now using the URL thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon, you'll get 80% off the original price. And of course, you can order lectures on any topic from the sciences to the humanities to photography, and you can watch them or listen to them on just about any device that you own. Remember, the 80% off deal only applies to The Secret Life of Words and is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, now back to our episode. Okay, but none of this actually answers the question, why? Why the change? This was the part that you were supposed to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, You have previously declared your lack of formal education in linguistics. You know, I can one-up you by saying I've had no formal education in linguistics, except for the previous 47 episodes, no informal education (laughs) in in linguistics. So I'm probably a poor source for posing this question to, but unless you can show me some historical evidence that someone was consciously disturbed with the stilted formality of 4 and 20 and thought that perhaps in the context of other changes that were sweeping Europe at the time, that language simplification was an urgent enterprise, I just got to think that someone got lazy and other people got lazy at about the same time and the laziness caught on. You know, next thing you know, the easier approach was uh, was universal, is my guess. You're actually onto something there when you say the easier approach. Okay, so let's start with this order reversal first, the first change that took place in and around the 1400s Middle English time. First off, we know that among the languages of the world, it's more common to write out the numbers between 21 and 99 with the tens unit first and then the ones unit, what's sometimes called higher before lower order, which suggests, as Berg and Neubauer point out, that there's something more cognitively natural about that. And it is more natural on the face of it, because let's say the number is 52, 50 is the lion's share of the quantity, the two is just, uh, you know, the small change. And of course, you would give priority or preference to the larger share of the sum. You know, if someone tells you that he's going to make a gift to you of $400,022, I promise you the 22 is the last thing you're focusing on. Once again, as much as you lack formal and informal education, you are anticipating precisely something that no less than a very prominent linguist of the 20th century, Joseph Greenberg, who died in the early aughts, I believe, said. And Berg and Neubauer paraphrase him. He says that in multi-digit numbers, a consistent lower before higher order delays comprehension until the very end of the number word, 
whereas a consistent higher before lower order allows the listener to derive a reasonable approximation to the actual number value on the basis of the beginning of the number word. In a nutshell, the higher before lower order is more efficient. Yeah, Bob, I'm going to give you twenty-two and four hundred thousand dollars. Wait, 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 what? Twenty? Wait, what? <laughs> Nicely done. Seriously, I'm impressed. That was a very good deduction on your part. Well, oh, sure. That's not the only reason Bergen Neubauer proposed for this change in English, because German, as I mentioned earlier, still writes out the numbers in the four and twenty construction, except for dry and neunzig, which never comes up. <laughs> right. Nobody ever uses 93, apparently. <laughs> Even when it's their birthday. It's, it's kind of like 13 in hotels. Geburtstag, welche? Drei und ich kann nicht sagen. So there are a couple of other clues as to maybe why it changed for English. One is that the language that had the greatest contact and influence on Middle English was Norman French. And in Old French, numbers were written out in the 20 and 4 pattern. 23 for 23, for example. So it may be that French had an influence on that first change, the flipping of the order. They then suggest and go on to reject yet another possible explanation. They argue that the 4 and 20 pattern is inherently unstable in a way because the way that we write out actual numbers as numbers, whether we're using Arabic numerals or Roman numerals, is higher before lower, right? So for a two-digit number, the tens digit comes first, and then the ones digit second. And as Berg and Neubauer point out, this conflict creates a problem only for literate people, right? Illiterate people, they say, are not bothered, right? Because they're not actually writing out the numbers, they're only speaking them. So they say an increase in literacy would cause a difficulty that did not exist before, and therefore maybe encourage the elimination of this mismatch, as they put it, thereby, you know, spurring on the flipping of 4 and 20 to 20 and 4. But then they sort of reject that because they note that this changed long before there was widespread literacy in English. Makes me wonder about literate and illiterate Israelis who are reading Hebrew right to left. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can half answer this question, Mike. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Who are reading Hebrew... Uh, right to left, but when there's a number, it is expressed left to right. I wonder if they get a tiny little headache having to reverse directions even for the, the duration of a, a single written number value. Maybe I'll ask my mom, Bob. She went to Yiddish school when she was a kid and wrote in Yiddish before she wrote in English. So her only experience with writing as a child was right to left before she then went to the American public school system. In any case... Berg and Neubauer take all of these various potential reasons and say, thus, it may be the combination of language contact with the French, the processing advantage that the higher before lower appears to confer, and doubtlessly other factors that brought about the numeral change in the history of English. But the question remains, why then do other Germanic languages, including German, including Dutch, persist in writing numbers out in what you call a very stuffy way. Yeah, Mike, warum? Well, we can't answer that question obviously definitively, but there are many things that languages do all around the world that are not necessarily efficient. There might be a 
particularly circuitous way of doing something in one language in a much more direct way in another. And there is a kind of inertia, of course, that languages have. As much as they do change, there are aspects of language that persist over the centuries. But there's one kind of weird little anecdote that suggests maybe even Germans don't think of the way that they write out numbers or say them out loud as perhaps the best way. So in the very early 90s, there was a German man who, at the age of 50, had a stroke and developed aphasia as a result of it. Over the course of the next year or two, much of his symptoms with regard to talking and comprehending speech went away. They resolved themselves. Although he had some problems that persisted with regard to reading and writing, and in particular, processing numbers. And so some neurolinguists got very interested in him, and he made regular visits to a neurolinguistics lab and was you know, essentially subjected to many, many tests, one of which was he was presented with two-digit numerals and asked to read them out loud. And he would frequently flip the order of them. In fact, hmm. he did it much of the time, if not most this of the time. so Oliver Sacks. I love this story. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the story of this patient was written up famously in a journal called Brain and Cognition in the late 1990s. And Berg and Neubauer suggest that if the 4 and 20 pattern really is dispreferred, as they say, as it appears to be, because most of the world's languages do the higher before lower order, then they say its cracks should be discernible. And they suggest that this stroke patient exposes the cracks in the system because most of his errors were inversions of the unit and 10 places when reading these numbers aloud. You mean it, it was evidence of the consensus you've been describing, which is that the natural way of understanding numbers is by the larger unit first, followed by the, the smaller ones, and that his brain damage triggered him to surrender the conventions of German to default to the natural way of comprehending numbers in writing. Well said. Vielen Dank. So, so much for the vaunted German efficiency. <laughs> in fact, you know, we're talking about little headaches, maybe, you know, a couple thousand years of the brain gymnastics required to express numbers in this ass-backwards way could explain some other stuff. Why, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know what? I withdraw the thought. Uh, I see no reason to explore it any farther. I'll leave this in. I won't edit it out. I'll just leave it up to our listeners to draw their own conclusions. So if we have any German listeners, let us know. It does the way that you speak and write out numbers in your language, does it pose any issues for you ever cognitively? Does it seem like it doesn't quite make sense to put the lower number first? Write us and let us know. Yeah, and I got one for you too, Mike. I'm sorry to withhold this till the very end, but it's been bugging me for the entire half hour. We've been discussing what to do with numbers like 36 or 6 and 30 and why the system of expressing them in language changed. But what's bugging me is that there's actually four different ways to express whole numbers. There is the, you know, for 36, there's the 36. And for the integers up to 10, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And then in English and a mess of other languages, I believe, there's the outliers, 11 and 12, 
which don't have any kind of decimalization to them. They're just words to describe 11 and 12. And then the teens show up, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Why do 11 and 12 have a linguistic place unto themselves? So that's the first thing that's bugging me. And the second thing that's bugging me is why the next seven numbers in the series of integers also have a separate way of expressing themselves. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, through 19. And then at 20, then all this other stuff we've been discussing kicks in. Why are there four sets of rules for expressing numbers? I think we've found our follow-up episode. Oh, that's an easy out, but okay. Yeah, I'll take you up on that. We can explore this further in, uh, you know, maybe in episode 6 and 50. (laughs) Yeah, numbers are fun, aren't they? Yes, turns out. Mike, as you say, numbers are fun. Bob, for somebody with such meager education, and (laughs) I can only assume that what you did have was... (laughs) not of the highest quality, you have a, quite an intellectual curiosity. Well, you know, Mike, um, for the nice things that you just said, vielen Dank, and for the return of the digs that I dug at you earlier, I, I mean, I don't even know how to say this in German, but stoppen Sie. <laughs> I think what you mean is fick dich. Really? Ew. All right, well, now that we've like probably thoroughly offended all of our German listeners... Please, again, write to us if you want to weigh in on the way, the weird way that you write out your numbers. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. You can find us in the iTunes store by just searching for Lexicon Valley. I want to thank Thomas Berg and Mary Neubauer for this fantastic paper, which you can find in the journal Language Variation and Change and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey, we done here? We are done. Later, Gator. Hello? Hello, Mamala. Hello, Tatoa. I have a question for you. Yes. So when you were a kid and when you were a teenager and when you were an adult, you spoke both Yiddish and English, right? Not so much as an adult. You know, we spoke more English, but when I was younger, yeah. So when you would speak in Yiddish, how would you say, for example, the number 24? Fair and tantric. So you're saying 4 and 20. Right. Now, when you would speak in English, you would say, of course, 24. You would do it the reverse way, and there would be no and in the middle. Right. Did it give you a little bit of a headache to switch back and forth? No. When you're speaking in another language, you kind of forget the English, you know, when you're just speaking in that language. And when you're speaking in English, you forget your foreign language. So really, you one has nothing to do with the other. Hmm. So when you were speaking Yiddish and you were saying 4 and 20, you weren't thinking, oh, that's weird. I do it the opposite way in English. No, not at all. All right. Thanks, Mom. I love you. Okay. I love you, too. Take care. Did uh, Xander get dressed up? <laughs> yeah, he's Superman for Halloween. <laughs> I'll send you a picture later today. Yeah, okay. All right. I love you. Love you, too. Bye.